Mark chapter 10, I want to begin by reading verses 17 through 22. I always like to read the text as I begin. My Bible gives the heading as the rich young ruler here. Mark 10, 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Yeshua asked him. No one is good but one, the Almighty. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Then looking at him, Yeshua loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was stunned at this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. So I initially thought that today I would be talking about what I'm going to call the atoning aspect of almsgiving. I believe the Bible teaches meritorious almsgiving, that when we give to the poor, it grants us a reward from the Creator. But I also believe there's an atoning aspect of almsgiving, and that one may not sit well with you or people that hear it for the first time. I believe I can show you that in Scripture, that in some sense, giving to the poor atones or covers over sin, but that'll have to wait for a future sermon. I do promise to cover it. Yah's will. Uh, but as I study this subject out, there is so much more that I think needs to be brought to the forefront. So I don't want to rush myself. Um, I decided to focus this lesson on Mark chapter 10 and the account of the rich young ruler coming up to Yeshua. I want to focus on the part of this text that is pertinent to our studies about giving to the poor. I'm not going to do a complete exegesis of every single verse or sentence in the text. And towards the end of the sermon, I want to talk about some of this text in relation to the whole modern-day prosperity gospel movement. Uh, that's really what I'm titling this sermon. Is the concept of meritorious almsgiving, whereby Yahweh rewards the giving to the poor, is there anything like the modern-day prosperity gospel movement? I'll talk about that here in just a little bit. So in Mark 10, beginning at verse 17, this young man comes up to the Messiah, to the Master, and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a lot of preachers today would get upset about being just asked that kind of a question. They would say to the person that said, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? A lot of preachers would say, Don't you know it's all been done? Just believe. You don't have to do anything. It's just by grace. And by believe, they mean that you believe something in your mind. That's where belief starts and stops with a lot of people. Uh, many preachers today think that faith is the absence of law. That's not scriptural, but that's what's thought about in a lot of Christianity. But Yeshua doesn't get upset. He doesn't tell the man you're asking the wrong question. He says, you know the commandments. And then he begins to cite some of the commandments on the second stone of the law. Now, both the Gospel of Matthew, Elijah read that, and the Gospel of Luke, 
also record this account for us. So when we look to Luke and his gospel, he records Yeshua as saying the same thing. He gets asked a question. Yeshua says, you know the commandments, and he cites some of the commandments. But if you read Matthew's account, Matthew records it a little bit different. When the rich young ruler asks the Messiah, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Yeshua answers according to Matthew's account, and he says this, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments, period. Then he cites some of the commandments. Now, I don't think that the Gospel of Matthew contradicts Mark and Luke. I've talked before how that different authors come at things from different points of view, different perspectives, different flavors. You know the commandments in Mark and Luke is basically telling the rich young ruler, this is how I understand it, you know the answer to this question, keep the commandments. Do you know how upset it will make some people today to hear me or you answer someone that asks us, what do we need to do to inherit eternal life? If we gave the exact same answer that Yeshua gave, do you know how upset some people would get? There are some people in this world, in Christendom, that if they were within earshot of me and a person came up to me and said, Brother Matthew, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? If I looked at that person and I said, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. The person that was overhearing or eavesdropping the conversation, they would say that Brother Matthew is teaching a false gospel and he's denying the work of the Messiah. Because people don't think that you need to keep the commandments in order to enter into life. But then if I turned over to Matthew 19 verse 17 and I read them the exact answer that the Messiah gave to the rich young ruler, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. If I read it out of the Bible, a lot of people would weasel their way out of it and end up saying, let me tell you what the Messiah really meant. He was tricking the rich young ruler or making him think, they would say. I want to go on record as telling you that I believe that Yeshua meant exactly what he said. I think when he said, if you want to enter into life, he was asking or answering a question about eternal life. He said, you need to keep the commandments. Commandment keepers inherit eternal life. Commandment breakers do not. Now, in Matthew's account, the rich young ruler responds by saying, which ones? And that makes me laugh. I smiled when I was putting together this sermon this week. That's a question, isn't it? And I think that's a silly question. When I read that, I think, now, if somebody says which ones, maybe their heart's not in the right place. When Yeshua said keep the commandments, to me it's obvious that He meant any commandment that you can keep, keep it. Any commandment you have the ability to keep that applies to you, keep that commandment. I think this man, I don't think his heart was in the right place, and I think he was trying to figure out what's the bare minimum that I need to do and still get eternal life. See, in life, some people can be given a task and they'll do just barely enough to get by. They'll move slow, they'll work with a frown, they'll grumble, they'll complain, but they'll do just enough not to get fired. <laughs> but you have other people who will work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. They'll do everything they're required to do and they'll do it with joy. 
They'll do it to the very best of their ability, and then they'll go above and beyond and do something a little bit extra. You have that in life. You have that in the natural. If we apply this to the spiritual, there are people who ask, which ones, Master, which commandments, when he says keep the commandments? And then there are people who don't ask the question, but they immediately start thinking, I need to go read and study the commandments so I can do what the Master said. Two types of people. So if we go back to Mark's account of the rich young ruler, Yeshua says, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. And then he starts to cite some of the commandments. Now he gives six of them in Mark 10, verse 19. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. It's interesting that five out of these six are found in the Ten Commandment list verbatim in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, five out of the six. But not the commandment, do not defraud. Do not defraud is not found in the list of the Ten Commandments. That commandment comes from Leviticus 19, verse 13. I just read it a second ago. The King James Version uses the word defraud, and it says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. Now, I would agree that that commandment falls up under commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. The point I'm making is do not defraud is not listed verbatim in the Ten Commandments. It's in Leviticus 19, verse 13. So my sons that have worked with me, they pull this verse on me, Leviticus 19, verse 13, after working for a day and asking for pay, even though it's not payday, when I was growing up, when I first started working with my Uncle Howard on a roofing crew, everybody looked forward to Friday that was payday and then come Monday a lot of the people that were wouldn't have any money left over that they got paid on Friday <laughs> and they'd be asking Uncle Howard to spot them some money for the following week but when my sons would ask me that I need to get paid dad I need the money for today I pay them and the reason I pay them is Leviticus 19 verse 13 it's also in Deuteronomy 24 in our society, we have paydays that generally come at the end of a week's work, like on Friday. Some people get paid every two weeks. And that might be an agreement that we make today, but it's really not scriptural. This is what I say. I say that it's okay to have that agreement between two people, but with the agreement, if we're keepers of the Torah, with the agreement should come the caveat that if a worker comes up at the end of the day and he wants to be paid for that day's labor, even though there's been a weekly agreement for pay, it's a commandment that you give them that pay. Most of the time, a worker is not as wealthy as the employer. And so they need the money to get through the evening or have to pay a bill or something like that. I'm sure that some people today that work for an unbelieving employer that only get paid every two weeks, or I've talked to people before that only get paid once a month, I'm sure that, sure that some people have a hard time stretching their money, and it ought not be that way. It's not Yahweh's way. So that's a little bit on that subject of do not defraud there in Mark 10, verse 19. So defrauding your neighbor, other translation says do not oppress your neighbor, do not exploit, do not cheat, do not take advantage of your neighbor. What that means is to withhold pay from someone who has worked for you for that day. It's important that we make note of this, and this is why it's important and why I've went over it for just a few minutes. 
because it shows that the Messiah was not telling the rich young ruler just to keep the Ten Commandments. This is a popular teaching amongst like Seventh-day Adventists and some people that claim to keep the law. They say, maybe don't say it like this, but keep the Ten and you're in. Just keep the Ten Commandments. We know you've got to keep the Ten Commandments. And a lot of times they'll say the other commandments are the laws of Moses. And they'll put a differentiation between Moses' law and the laws of Yahweh. And I have taught sermons on this, but that is a false differentiation. There's no difference between Yahweh's law and the law of Moses. The reason it's called the law of Moses is because Moses was the one who went up on the mountain, visited with Yahweh, even had the glory of Yahweh brighten up his face and brought the law back down and then wrote the remainder of the law in a book. So Yahweh gave Israel his law through the agency of prophet Moshe. So that's why it's called the law of Moses. Not because Moses made up laws apart from Yahweh. See, So that's a, that's a wrong differentiation. But here, we know that the Messiah wasn't just saying keep the Ten Commandments verbatim because he puts in one of the commandments, do not defraud. The Ten Commandments should not be looked on as an exhaustive list to begin with. The Ten Commandments should be looked on as headings under which hundreds of other commandments fall. I talked about that a lot when I taught through all ten of the commandments. But it's very important that we recognize this. Do not defraud here is given in addition to the other commandments in the ten um, because it teaches us it's not okay to ignore the rest of the law so long as you're focused on the verbatim ten commandments. So what happens next? Well, the rich young ruler responds, Mark 10, verse 20, and he says, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth or since I was little. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit here. Why did Yeshua just cite six of the commandments? Here's two possibilities that I've come up with. One is this. As Yeshua was citing off some of the commandments, the young man interrupted him. And he said, I know, I know, I know. I've been doing all this since I was little. That's a possibility. Number two, and I think this is probably more likely, Yeshua cites certain commandments that deal with person-to-person relationships because those were the commandments that the young man needed to hear the most. Yeshua knew the man's heart and his life, and he hit it where it needed to be hit. We all have commandments we struggle with, don't we? Uh, There are commandments that I don't struggle with. There are commandments that I have down, and I obey them with ease, and I'm not even tempted in certain areas. Sometimes I like to focus only on those commandments because it makes me feel good. (laughs) But it's not those that I have down that I need to focus on. It's the ones that I don't have down that I need to focus on. It's the ones I don't have down that I need to hear preached to me so that I rise to greater and greater levels of conviction and holiness and sanctification before the Creator. I don't want to feel good about myself because I compared myself with somebody else that I know. I want to constantly compare myself to the Messiah and make sure that I am walking the walk and not just talking with my words. So after this young man told Yeshua that he'd been keeping all of these commandments since he was little, 
in Mark 10:21, Yeshua says, or it says, then looking at him, Yeshua loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now you see why this sermon fits in with my series on almsgiving. This is the part I want to focus in on, the giving to the poor. What is it that the rich man lacked? It had something to do with his treatment of the poor. That's what he lacked. It is possible that although he believed that he had followed the commandments to love his neighbor since he was little, he actually had deceived himself into thinking that he had followed those commandments. As we went over last week, there are many commandments in the Torah that speak of taking care of the poor. The widows, the orphans, the foreigners that join themselves to the nation of Israel. We read in Leviticus 19 at the beginning of the service today that an Israelite was not even allowed to harvest everything that he planted in his field. He had to leave the borders for the poor. And in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says that when an Israelite would knock the olives out of an olive tree or gather the grapes out of a vineyard, that he could make one pass. And if he saw there was still some olives in the tree or some grapes on the vineyard that he forgot or just left over or that grew after he had harvested, he said, leave them, don't go back. Leave them for the poor. So for Yeshua to tell this man to give to the poor was not out of line with keeping the commandments. But, but, sell everything that he had? That sounds a bit extreme. It sounds extreme, doesn't it, to sell everything you have and give the money to the poor. Now, I don't want you to forget the text that I've opened up with for the past two lessons. In Luke 12, verse 33 where the Messiah, not just speaking to the rich young ruler, he's speaking to a crowd of many thousands of people. Luke 12, 1. Verse 33 of Luke 12, he says, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So he said that to everybody. But he told the rich young ruler, Sell everything that you have and give the money to the poor. Why sell everything? There are two schools of thought here. One is that the rich young ruler had acquired his riches by exploiting and defrauding other people. One of the early church fathers, and I just say that for a point of reference because to me the church fathers are the apostles. <laughs> All right. So, But the people that are called the church fathers are some early professing Christians in the second and third centuries. They call them anti or anti-Nicene fathers. They're Christians that come before the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. One of them, his name is Origen. And Origen, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he cites a writing called the Gospel of the Nazarenes. And in the Gospel of the Nazarenes, Origen says it speaks of the rich young ruler's mistreatment of the poor. Now, Origen lived from 185 A.D. to 254 A.D. It doesn't mean I believe everything that Origen said, but he cites this gospel in his commentary on Matthew. And this is how he cites it. He says this, quote, And the Lord said to him, the rich young ruler, How can you say I have fulfilled the law and the prophets? 
For it stands written in the law, Love thy neighbor as thyself. And behold, many of thy brethren, sons of Abraham, are begrimed with dirt and die of hunger. And thy house is full of many good things, and nothing at all comes forth from it to them. End of quote. If this is the case, and origin citation is correct, and I think it carries a lot of weight, then the rich young ruler accumulated his wealth sinfully. And furthermore, he wasn't using it as the Torah commanded him to use it. He wasn't using his wealth to help the poor. So therefore, his master was his wealth, and his master was not Yahweh. Remember what Yeshua said in Matthew 6, you can't serve Yahweh and money. And the way you tell if you're serving money is if you have that evil eye rather than the good eye. So thus, there was a requirement to him to sell everything he owned and give the money away to the poor. It could be that Yeshua knew that that's what it would take for him to pay back all the wrong that he had done. So extreme, yes, but maybe that's what it would take. Now, the other school of thought here is that Yeshua was hitting the man with the first table of the law, not having other gods before him. This is the more popular school of thought that I really don't agree with. This interpretation says that the man loved and served his wealth over Yahweh, so Yeshua challenged him on idolatry. I'm more inclined to go with the previous understanding that I mentioned, the first school of thought. Whichever one you want to go with, what I want you to notice is what Yeshua says here, and this is the point that I've been building up to in this sermon. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. The Messiah links up the giving away of money to the poor with the amount of treasure a person has in heaven. There's a direct connection between the two. In order to store up treasure in heaven, you must give your alms to those who are in need. That's how you store up treasure in heaven, by giving to the poor. Mark 10 verse 22 tells us that the young man was stunned. HCSB, some Bibles say he was sad, some say he was gloomy. And it says that he went away and he was grieving because he had many possessions. Now, do we believe this? I've been thinking about what I've been teaching on for the past few weeks. Selling possessions, giving to the poor, treasure in heaven, all that goes along with it. And it's hard to wrap your mind around it. And this is why. What feels the most real is what is right now. Let me explain that. Right now, in this moment you are in, feels the most real. Any one of us could die before we get home tonight. But we don't know that, so it's not real to us. We could lose our job next week, but right now that's not real because we haven't experienced it. We could be stolen from a month from now, or any kind of calamity could happen in our life or the lives of our family, but it's not real until it happens. What's most real is right now. So, when I preach about selling possessions and giving the money away to the poor so that I can have great treasure in heaven, it just doesn't seem real. Because you cannot see it. It's not something tangible. You can't reach out and touch it. But yet, I believe it is true. We read it. It's difficult, but it's true. Look at what Yeshua said next after this guy goes away grieving. Mark 10, verse 23. 
Yeshua looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of the Almighty. But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Yeshua said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of the Almighty. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of the Almighty. Now, if we take that literally, we know there's no way possible that we as a human being could fit a camel through the eye of a needle. I mean, you've got to look real careful if you're just putting thread through the eye of a needle. There's different schools of thought. When I was growing up in the Pentecostal church, it was very popular for people to say that the eye of a needle was a hole in a wall or a door in a city around Jerusalem. And when a traveler would come up to that hole, he would ride on the camel and he'd have to get off the camel and undress everything on the camel. And the camel would have to kneel down and he could just barely fit through that hole. And that was the eye of a needle. And that's how the preachers preached it when I was growing up. And then I got a little bit older and I found that there's no historical validation for that right there. <laughs> that's something somebody just made up, you know. There is a possibility of a mistranslation, and I really don't go with this either, but this is taken from the Aramaic uh, gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where the, the, in the Aramaic, the words for camel and rope are very similar. And so a man like George Lamza or people that believe in Aramaic primacy, some of the Eastern churches, they would say that through the translation from Aramaic into Greek, camel came across and it should have been rope. It's easier for a rope to go through, through the eye of a needle. So it's not impossible, but you could, it's, it's very difficult. You could little by little get the rope through. And then some people just think that it's talking about a camel and the eye of a needle. And there are Hebrew uh, commentaries or Hebrew... Uh, discussions about scripture, not necessarily this text, but text in the Old Testament where they're talking about wealth and they don't use a camel, but they use an elephant. It's easier to put an elephant through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So I kind of think that it's probably talking about an actual camel and an actual eye of a needle because in verse 26, the disciples' response was, who can be saved? That, that's not possible. I'll get to that in a second. But our first, when we read this, verses 23 through 25, where Yeshua said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of the Almighty, our first fleshly inclination is this. Let me figure out a way to explain this away. <laughs> because we don't really want to believe it. Now, I don't see myself as a rich man. I'm talking about by the world standards. Now, I'm a very wealthy man. I have health. I have a great family, great wife, great children, great church. I'm not talking about that. By the world standards, I don't see myself as a rich man. But really, it's relative because by some standards in the world, people would look at me as an extremely rich man. To many people, even in America, I would be looked upon as wealthy. To others, I'd be looked upon as middle class. Or sometimes there are some people in America that would look upon me as a poor man because we have people that have billions and billions of dollars nowadays. So I don't view myself as a rich man by America's standards or whatever, but I do have a lot of possessions. And most of my possessions are paid for. So I have riches. Is it hard for me to enter the kingdom of the Almighty? Yeshua said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of the Almighty. 
Look at verse 24 where it says the disciples were astonished at his words. Why were they astonished? Why did that shock them? Let me tell you why I think that shocked them. It's likely because the association of wealth is with the righteous people in the Torah. I could go to many verses but one. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. Yahweh tells the Israelites, it'll come to pass that if you obey all my commandments, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, the fruit of the ground, and thy cattle will yield. I'll cause your enemies to be smitten. I'll give you rain. You'll lend and not borrow. All the peoples of the earth will see you're called by my name. And they'll be afraid of you, but that's only if you obey my commandments. So Hebrew people associated wealth with obedience to the Torah. I think that's why they were astonished at what Yeshua said. So then how could wealth and riches be something that keeps a person or gives a person difficulty with getting into the kingdom? Well, I believe that the answer is what I've been teaching in this sermon series. I think this is the answer. A lot of times, wealthy people are stingy people who don't help the poor. But they just accumulate more and more for themselves and they never give any of it away. I think, I could be wrong, I think this is why Yeshua says it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Because if you don't give to the poor and are stingy, you're not using your wealth to keep the commandments in the Torah that say to give to the poor. So in verse 26, the disciples hear this and they say, who can be saved? And Yeshua says in verse 27, with men it is impossible. That's why I think that the camel is a literal camel and the eye of a needle is a literal eye of a needle because it's not possible with men. But he says, but with Yahweh, with all the Almighty, all things are possible. Why did he say that? Because all things are possible with the Almighty in reference to the rich entering the kingdom. It's, this is why I think he said that. Because a rich person who does not truly believe in or follow the Almighty will not have a concern for the poor. But a person who truly believes in and serves the Almighty will be obedient to all of the commandments that have to do with helping the poor. I think that's what it means with it being possible to enter into the kingdom being wealthy with the Almighty is that the rich person that is with the Almighty is concerned about the poor as the Torah commands. We're not through yet. Look at verse 28. Peter speaks up and says, Look, we have left everything and followed you. And Yeshua says in verses 29 through 31, He says, I assure you, there is no one who has left house brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel who will not receive 100 times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, I told you at the beginning of the sermon I was going to talk a little bit about the prosperity gospel at the close of the sermon. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Now, Mark 10, 28 through 30 is an absolute favorite text of the prosperity gospel preachers. I'm talking about Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Jesse Duplantis, Creflo Dollar, you know, those guys. That's who I'm talking about. This is a very popular text with them. 
And when they read it, they stress. I just watched a video today with Gloria Copeland, and she stresses that she takes her pen, and she's going to circle now at this time 100 times. Now at this time. Talking about while we're on the earth. And the key is, is you just give your money to them, and you get the hundredfold blessing. Jesse Duplantis says it's like, you know, you have a sheet and you fold it up a hundred times. And every time you fold it, it gets thicker, thicker, and thicker, thicker. <laughs> That's what he says. I tried to watch a video with him, but I couldn't get through it. So I turned it off and I said, I, I got enough information to teach the sermon. In a book by Gloria Copeland, she says it like this, quote, You give $1 for the gospel's sake and $100 belongs to you. You give $10 and receive 1000 Give 1000 and receive 100000 Give one airplane and receive 100 times the value of the airplane. Give one car and the return would furnish you a lifetime of cars. In short, Mark 10 verse 30 is a very good deal. End of quote from Gloria Copeland. Now, some people might hear what I've been teaching about almsgiving and think that sounds a little bit like the prosperity gospel, give and be blessed, okay? We don't want to let the abuse of something turn us away from the proper use. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. What I mean is I don't believe that everybody that follows the Messiah will be wealthy and never get sick. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches, and I don't believe that. And I've taught, I just taught a recent series of sermons on sickness, disease, the will of Yahweh, and you can go back and, and watch those sermons online. What's the difference between the prosperity gospel, what they teach, and what the Bible teaches? Now, I've been teaching you that you can store up treasures in heaven by giving, and Yahweh will provide for your needs. How is that different from the prosperity gospel? Two key differences here, in case anybody ever asks you this. The first difference, and it's a big one, the prosperity gospel teaches you to give to the preacher, to the church, or to the religious group, and it's always theirs. Now, I believe that we should support genuine ministers. I've preached on this before, a few sermons over the years. However, I do not believe that a minister that lives off of full-time ministerial pay, I do not believe that he should live a lavish lifestyle above the members of the church. And this is what happens so often in these churches is that people in the congregation grow poorer and poorer and poorer because the preacher are te is telling them, just trust the process. Keep giving. Give till it hurts. It's got to be a sacrifice. And they keep doing it. And they grow poor and the preacher grows wealthy because he's saying, come and give it in my pocket. I've heard him say, I, I'll give you a prophecy, but you've got to cash at me some money for the prophecy. I had a sister tell me this just not long ago. You cash up $100 to the prophetess, she gives you a prophecy. It's amazing to me that people go along with that kind of stuff, but some people are hurting and they don't know where else to turn and they figure, well, maybe I can buy my miracle. What the Bible teaches about storing up treasure in heaven has nothing to do with giving to a preacher. It has to do with giving to people who are in need. That's why I said not long ago, I, I gave a testimony in testimony service. I want and I appreciate everybody that gives in our offering box here. We don't take up an offering. But we're really not in the position where we need it. We've had so many people give for so long. We have plenty of money. And if we need anything, need to do anything, we can take care of it. And if a need arises in the church... I can make an announcement and say, hey, we need X amount of dollars 
and all of you will pitch in and we'll get it done. We've had it done before. We've had it done for people who have been needy in this church. And we give to the person. What I would like to see done is for you to seek out and find people that are genuinely in need. Genuine widows. Genuine orphans. Genuine poor people. And give to them. I'm not interested in making a bunch of money as a preacher. I'm not interested in making any money as a preacher. I work and sweat and make money myself. Give to the poor is what I'm teaching. Not what the prosperity gospel teaches. Kenneth Copeland says, give it to me. His offerings was lacking during the COVID-19 when it started coming out in 2020. And I watched a little broadcast he did, and he said, look, you can't be scared. He said, if you just have to come up, he said, just walk up to the church with your mask on and slide, slide it under the door so we can still get you off. <laughs> I got the video. I saved the video. I said, man, alive. Just as about a, when I think I've heard it all, I hear something else. So number one, give to the poor is what I'm teaching, not give it to the preacher. Number two, the prosperity gospel focuses everything on the here and now. Well, the Bible teaches us that the primary focus is on the kingdom of heaven and that you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, your needs will be met if you give to the poor now. Your needs will be met. But the primary focus is the resurrection of the righteous. And if we, by giving to the poor now, become more wealthy or more blessed monetarily, we should look at it as, great, I've got more money to give back now to the poor as Yahweh commands because I want great treasure in heaven. But what about Mark 10 verse 30 about the hundredfold blessing? It should not surprise us that the prosperity gospel preachers misinterpret or manipulate this text because the hundredfold blessing or the hundredfold return in Mark 10 30 is not speaking of you as an individual receiving 100 houses because you gave one house. As a matter of fact, this text don't have anything to do with giving money away to a preacher or to a church or to an organization. What this text has to do with is somebody that loses relationships for the sake of the gospel and gains relationships with people who believe in the gospel. Look at it again, verse 29. Yeshua says, I assure you, there is no one who has left, not given, who has left house, Brothers or sisters, mother or father, children or fields because of me and the gospel. Stop right here. He's not speaking about giving to the church. He's not speaking about sowing your money into a ministry. He's talking about people that have had to give up their relationships, their homes, houses, could be translated households, their jobs. That's what I think it means by fields. And the reason they've had to give them up is their commitment to the Messiah and the gospel of the kingdom. Think about it. Think about a person who loses their job because of their beliefs or their practices. Think about a person whose family disowns them because now they're a religious fanatic. They keep the commandments. We don't want to have anything to do with you. You don't believe it exists? I've had many people contact me over the years whose family doesn't want anything to do with them because they believe a certain way. I've experienced some of it myself. This person that gives up these relationships. They love their family. They love their job. They'd like to be able to keep it, but they love Yeshua and the kingdom more. So they lose a house, a household, family. They lose a job. And in Mark 10, verse 30, Yeshua says that there is no one who has left these things 
because of me and the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time here on earth houses? What does he mean by that? The homes of other believers who welcome you to stay with them. Mother, father, sister, brother, the family. I've told you all before, I'm more comfortable, comfortable around you guys than I am some of my only blood family. <laughs> because we have more in common. I'd rather sit down and break bread with Brother TJ than I would people in my own family. It doesn't mean I don't love them, but I have more in common with Brother TJ, with Brother Frankie, with Brother John. Because, as he says earlier in Mark chapter 3, who is my brother, my sister, and my mother but those that do the will of Yahweh? So he's saying there are people that lose relationships for me and the gospel and they gain all these things a hundredfold now at this time. And they'll also gain eternal life. And then he says, he adds there in verse 30. We don't want to leave this out. He says, with persecutions. Because you don't hear the prosperity gospel preachers use that part of the verse. He says, you'll gain all of these things, but it'll be with persecutions. And what he means in the first century is lashings, beatings, death, stonings, imprisonment because of what you believe. Not, not somebody talk bad about you on Facebook. That's not what he means by with persecutions. He's talking about actual persecutions. So the point about this hundredfold return is not that you'll be rich by the world's standards. It's that you